Thank you, Dr. Hopkins, for leading us in the reading of Scripture. Speaking of Scripture, Colossians 3.11 declares, Christ is all and in all. In another Hopkins statement, Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, the 19th century English poet and Jesuit priest contends that Christ plays in 10,000 places. The incomparable, inexhaustible Jesus Christ is manifested and magnified variously in Scripture, poetry, and life. In Colossians alone, for example, Christ is lauded as the cosmic Christ, the one who keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos as H.G.C. Mole once said. Even as Jesus is lauded as the cosmic Christ, he is also praised as the crucified, risen, glorified, and coming Christ. What is more, all that Christ followers do in word and in deed is to be done in his matchless name, even as his peace is to rule as an umpire in our hearts, and his message is to dwell richly in our midst. In recent days, I have, for any number of reasons, been reflecting upon Jesus as the constant Christ, the very one in whom we have, may have confidence in, amid churn and change. And it is in this vein that I would like to direct our thoughts and our hearts this morning as we begin a new academic year, the constant Christ. Before we do, let's pray together. Day by day, day by day, oh dear Lord, three things we pray. To see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, to follow thee more nearly, day by day. Amen. The ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus of Ephesus, who lived from roughly 535 to 475 BC, and whose literary work survives only in fragments, was frequently referred to during his lifetime as the obscure and as the weeping philosopher. Heraclitus is perhaps best known for his thoughts regarding flux or ever-present change. Statements frequently attributed to him include these two well-known aphorisms. The only thing that is constant is change, and it is not possible to step into the same river twice. Given how pervasive and rapid change is, one cannot help but to resonate with and to see wisdom in Heraclitus' observations. Sea change seems to be the order of the day. Off of the top of my head, allow me to note seven facets or aspects of change and churn. 
change is occur occurring on a global level and not simply due to a pandemic that continues to plague people, though admittedly not as severely as in the past couple of years. For example, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing Russo-Ukrainian war, for example, has inalterably impacted myriad lives, including hundreds of thousands of innocent people and Truett's very own Susha Bondarenko and her family and loved ones. Environmental change also continues to take place throughout the earth. Objectively speaking, our world is warmer, even as our weather is more unpredictably severe. Explanations and incriminations abound, but breadcrumbs can be traced to all of our doors. The work of Dr. Jenny Howe, along with others at Truett and Baylor, is helping us assess the present ecological plight of our planet and to ask what we might do to be part of the solution to this escalating problem. Financial changes and challenges also abound. These two hit close to home. While I would need Baylor's Business School Dean Sandeep Mazumder to explain the intricacies of market fluctuation and even market economy, inflation pinches each of us at the gas pump, at the grocery store, and as we think about jobs, pay raises, or plan for retirement. And within the United States at least, although I gather it's taking place elsewhere too, there is presently significant political polarization that arguably marks a, a departure from an earlier time, at least in our nation's history, when bipartisanship was at least occasionally, if not frequently, achieved and displayed. To talk across the aisle, to work across the aisle, used to be something that was actually laudable, desirable. One cannot help but wonder and worry if social media, along with one's favorite news outlets, have hardwired us for such acrimony and even outright hostility for the foreseeable future. Would that the church could lead the way in the day in which we find ourselves. But we have our own set of struggles and challenges. While Baptists are expert at bickering and infighting, we are far from the only denomination marked and marred by division. Over the summer, for example, many of us have followed the churn and the change within Methodism and Anglicanism, to mention but two other ecclesial bodies. You could almost fill in the blank. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting a policy or an approach to peace at any cost, lest we become like those prophets that say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Rather, I am observing that change and churn seems to be at every hand. Moving yet closer to home yet. To the best of my knowledge, 
There has never been a time in Truett's relatively brief 28-year history when more substantive and widespread change has taken place with respect to seminary faculty and staff. For those of you who have known our school for some time, you will have taken note. For those of you who are new, it's important to know, to mention the names Levi Price, Ron Cook, Hewlett Glower, Lyling Nam, Roger Olson, Robert Creech, Steve Reed, Terry York, David Garland, Joel Gregory, Dorothy Terry, and Jan Kaysen is to speak of 12 long-serving, deeply loved pillars of this institution who have recently retired or will see, soon do so. Simply unbelievable. Sometimes I shake my head, other times I wring my hands. Furthermore, since the beginning of this calendar year, we have seen seven additional staff and faculty resign to go elsewhere. If this is part of the so-called great resignation, I for one have had plenty of it. Thank you very much. Because of retirements and resignations, not to mention a number of new positions due to ongoing growth and expansion, we will be conducting no less than 16 searches this academic year. That's what I say. Whoa. Just say it out loud. Uh, so if you see uh, faculty, staff, and administration, and we're not in a meeting, you better catch us while you can. It's not true. We will work these meetings in around other responsibilities, and from your perspective, the trains will run on time, and the clocks will run as they always have. But to say that the face of Truett will change over the course of the next few months is to state the obvious, though that is sometimes necessary to do. If global, environmental, political, financial, denominational, and institutional change were not enough, there are also, to be sure, as Dr. Reed mentioned in her prayer, any number of personal, individual changes that every one of us is experiencing at any given point in time. Some of you who are just now starting Truett are experiencing a fair degree of upheaval. It's considerable even if it is enjoyable. New city, new place to live, new roommates, new slate of classes, new church, new bank, new stores in which to shop, new roads in which to travel. And if you're trying to travel around here, it's even more difficult than it's ever been. Sorry, it was meant to be finished by now. How long, oh Lord, how long? <laughs> Some of us are facing familial, relational, medical, vocational, congregational changes and challenges. And they're impactful. They're consequential. While change is constant, and some change, I would hasten to add, is inevitable, desirable, it's, it's profitable. 
I would like to spend the balance of this address calling into question Heraclitus's contention that change is the only constant. I would like to do so by considering, albeit briefly, the text from Hebrews that Dr. Hopkins read earlier. If some mystery shrouds the origin of the book of Hebrews, which commences, according to H.E. Dana, like a treaty, continues like a homily, and concludes like a letter, it is clear that the author, whom I sometimes affectionately refer to as the pastor or the preacher, as Origen reminds, only God knows who wrote Hebrews, this author is at pains to encourage his audience, his auditors, perhaps Christ followers of a Jewish stamp living in Rome, to persevere in the faith. Although any number of texts throughout this lengthy letter, which at the conclusion the author says, I have written to you briefly this word of exhortation, and I think to myself, I would hate to see what one of his longer sermons is like. Any number of texts point in this direction, but perhaps the most well-known passage that conveys this very point is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where the pastor employs the people to run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Given Jesus' supremacy and superiority, which is the leading theme of Hebrews, to shrink back, fall away, or drift away is wholly unnecessary and will lead to spiritual bankruptcy. The pastor's persistent call for the people to persevere may arise in part from the churn, the change, and the challenge that the audience had experienced and continued to experience at least to some degree. Some of the addressees were seemingly tempted to throw in the spiritual tag, neglecting the gathering together of themselves and the encouragement and enrichment that arises from contact with other Christ followers. As it happens, the Christian faith turns out to be a contact sport. To these beleaguered believers, the pastor offers encouragement from sacred scripture, including such passages that preceded the one that Dr. Hopkins read from Hebrews 13.8, like Deuteronomy 4.24, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, or Deuteronomy 31.6, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The pastor also reminds the auditors to consider the example of their leaders, and to imitate their faith, the preacher then assures them that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What Christ had been to the congregation's first generation, the author assures them he would be to them. Applying a passage like Psalm 102:27 to Jesus, that is, you are the same, and your years will never end. 
the writer affirms Christ's steadfast, faithful character. What is true of God is no less true of God's Son. He is constant. To lift a line from James, there is no shifting of shadow or turning in him. Well, near the nerve center of the letter is the pastor wants to impress upon the people the unchanging character of God and his fidelity to his promises and to his people. The author appeals to Abraham, the father of faith. And in doing so, the author likens the sure and steadfast hope that believers can have in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the very faith they ought to have. And this hope can also be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be for us an anchor for the soul. Such hope, that is, hope that is likened unto an anchor, ultimately leads us behind the veil where Jesus has gone, the forerunner and high priest for his followers, who arises from the priestly order of that mysterious Melchizedek. Another topic for another time. As it happens, the anchor, which symbolizes hope and stability, became a symbol frequently employed in early Christianity. It was often fused with the cross, akin to the mariner's cross, a picture of which you will find as an insert in this morning's bulletin. The mariner cross that looks just like this. Interestingly, you will see the anchor and then the vertical uh, extension turns it into not only an anchor, but also a cross. So it's an anchor cross, or St. Clement's cross as it's sometimes known also known as a cross of hope. Interestingly and importantly, in the early Christian catacombs and cemeteries near Rome, one frequently finds the mariner's cross marking Christian graves. It may well be that ancient Greek-speaking Christians detected a wordplay between the term ankura, anchor, and in Curia, in Christ. So as to say, Christ is our anchor. In preparation for this morning, I also learned that missionaries of the United Methodist Church are meant to wear the anchor cross as a reminder that their lives should be anchored in faith and hope and love. Not a bad idea. Perhaps we should do so as well. Clement of Alexandria is reported to have approved of the use of the anchor as a Christian symbol due to its place in Scripture. If Hebrews was in fact written to Roman Christ followers who were not infrequently assailed, then it stands to reason that the symbol of the anchor signaling hope and stability might well have been taken up and employed there with some degree of frequency, not least early in the Christian faith. 
Ultimately, then, the anchor is a symbol that is meant to point to the person of Christ, the peace of Christ, the hope of Christ, the stability of Christ. In a recent conversation with one of my dean colleagues at the university, from whom I have gained permission to share this story, he was telling a small group of others how he and his wife in recent years lost a yet-to-be-born child at a very late time in her pregnancy. Understandably, that deep, unexpected loss shook my friend to the very core of his being. And in a season of great grief, searing loss and relentless pain, when he reports that he could have just as easily walked away from the faith during what for him was a dark night of the soul, he indicated that he came to embrace, and I quote, Christ all the more as the anchor of his life, the source of stability and hope. Some two weeks ago now, as I was fretting over fall enrollment numbers, which is not one of my guilty pleasures, I received a hopeful update from our new coordinator of enrollment management, Emma Beard. I saved the email, but not because of the numbers she reported, which have turned out to be just fine, as we have enrolled 100 new students this semester, which is one of our larger classes that enter. Rather, I saved the email because of its penultimate sentence, where Emma writes, and I quote, Amidst a season of change and transition, I am grateful that we can rest in the things that remain constant. Would that we all wrote such substantive emails. <laughs> Amidst a season of change and transition, I am grateful that we can rest in the things that remain constant. 20 words where she economically and eloquently states what I've been seeking to say as we start this new semester together. Namely, we can trust Christ to be constant, an anchor that holds in the midst of churn and change. I grew up singing the hymns, and I still like it when Dr. York says, if you will take the hymn book from the pew rack in front of you, I mean, this just ticks all of my boxes. <laughs> and the hymns for me have become a constant refrain. You never exactly know when they will play or why they will play. But this very day, trusting as the moments fly, trusting as the days go by, trusting Him whate'er befall, Trusting Jesus, that is all. Before Dr. York comes to lead us in another great hymn of the faith, Great is Thy Faithfulness, 
May I invite you to bow your heads with me? And as you do so, would you engage in this spiritual exercise? Would you please identify at least one change in your life that is causing you to be unsettled and unsure? I don't know what that might be for you. We've given any number of illustrations. A change that is stealing your peace, that is curbing your hope. What might it be? identified one or more changes that are causing you to churn. May I encourage you to consider anew the constant Christ, the anchor who holds, the source of our hope and strength, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the Alpha the Omega, both this semester and forever. Having identified a challenge, a change, having looked afresh to Christ. Even as a mariner might cast an anchor into the water, let's do what 1 Peter 5 encourages us to do. Let's cast our cares on him, knowing that he cares for us and knowing that the constant Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. Our Lord and our God, in the name of the constant Christ, we offer you our prayers.